Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. The grand experiment, John, at Goldman Sachs many, many years ago was to say, Abby Joseph, Abby Joseph Cohen, we can hire her and she can make a name of it. On Women's uh, International, uh, International Women's Day, it's very important that we speak and get the current thoughts of Abby Joseph Cohen of Goldman Sachs Advisory Director and their senior investment um, strategist. Abby, you have seen this too many times before. The angst of the ambiguity, up we go. Almost the fear of economic and GDP success. How do equities react when you get a surge in GDP as we anticipate? Well, Tom, first of all, thank you very much for including me uh, today in the discussion. Uh, It is an important day and an important week uh, for women. Um, You are asking exactly the right question about the markets, uh, and that is this. um, Is it good news or bad news? for the economy to be recovering, and I would say it is good news. Now, we are seeing, of course, this very significant rotation in terms of views. Those stocks that have performed extremely well only because interest rates were down uh, and low may have a problem, Um, but there are plenty of other opportunities uh, in the equity market as we do see a rotation towards those stocks that do better when we feel more comfortable with the pace of economic recovery and hopefully over the next couple of years, true economic expansion. Uh, These, of course, include Mm -hmm. the small cap names, also the value names where there's been this wide gap in things like P.E. ratios and so on, we're also seeing an improvement in stocks that are rate sensitive. There are some securities, some companies that do better when interest rates are a little bit higher. And we, of course, are seeing some movement now in those sectors uh, that do better when we come out of lockdown. And the good news on the vaccine uh, will, I think, be helpful. And, of course, those areas include things like restaurants and accommodations. Abby, I'm not going to mince words. Goldman Sachs has been out front on a bull call. Costin has led the way to SPX 4300. What does the gloom crew get wrong? Well, the the argument behind this really great outlook um, from from David is also based upon the above consensus view from Jan Hatzius, our chief economist, who believes that this year the U.S. will see GDP of close to 7 percent, and it's even better fourth quarter over fourth quarter, basically about 7.7 percent. And that's based upon, let's say, four factors. Number one, this very robust fiscal package. Number two, the Fed staying basically friendly. Uh, Number three, uh, the virus-depressed sectors beginning to rebound. And also, let's remember that there's an awful lot of pent-up savings uh, in the economy. Uh, The average consumer balance sheet, and again, I'm looking at the median, there are many exceptions, but the average is actually actually looking good. Debt balances are down, savings are up, and when people feel a little bit better about the outlook, uh, they'll start to 
to move forward um, and, and uh, start spending, and that's great for the economy. But you asked about the gloom crowd, and I think what the gloom crowd keeps coming back to is that there could be an uptick in inflation. Wouldn't be surprising. Uh, that's built into Jan's forecast as well. Uh, but let's look at inflation as being a function of two different things. Number one, there are some special factors happening this year. Maybe it's the energy prices and so on. And there's also, of course, that quick rebound um, in prices from the very depressed levels that we saw in some sectors in 2020. But the second important reason that inflation may move up a little bit um, is that we are seeing an improved economy, and I think that's great news. You know, it's the opposite side of the coin. On one side, the economy is doing better. On the other side, prices are not quite so depressed. The Goldman Sachs forecast on CPI does show it moving up from about a 1.1 last year to 2.5 this year. But in 2022, we're looking at CPI of about 2%. By historical levels, that is not a problematic level for inflation. Mm. And by the way, that is the Fed's target level for inflation, about 2%. Abby, you've seen it all. And many people come on this program and they try and look to history to find a parallel with the moment we're in right now. How original is this moment and what makes it unique? That's a great question. And I think what makes it unique is that none of us, regardless of how long we've been in the markets, have seen a pandemic-inspired uh, recession, um, bear market, and now, of course, the recovery. And what pleases us um, in terms of what might happen is that we are seeing policies that are aimed at providing relief. So we've had a friendly Federal Reserve and other central banks are doing what they can as well. And now, of course, we have this very meaningful relief package coming in the form of fiscal policy. And, and I think it's important not to categorize this totally as a stimulus package, because it's not. It's a relief package aimed at getting us out of the hole. And the next important thing to be watching is what the Congress can pass and the president can sign with regard to really moving us forward. Um, and that would include um, you know, things like uh, the infrastructure reform, uh, things like addressing some of the big issues in the labor markets. Um, and uh, there are some underlying problems that really must need, must be addressed and are not quite addressed yet, uh, even in this very large package that we expect to be assigned into law later this week. Abby, that's on the fundamental side, or it's become the fundamentals in terms of fiscal support. There's also a question on the technical side, what that means in markets. We've seen coming into this year, this year is different also because the global reflation tra uh, trade has not come along with a weaker dollar. In fact, the dollar is stronger against every single emerging markets currency major one out there uh, a, year, a year to date. And we're looking today at the biggest sell-off in the MSCI emerging market currency index versus the dollar going back to last March. How does that alter your views going forward? Or do you think that this is the ind indication of a different regime where the dollar can strengthen, yields can rise, and that doesn't come along with the best of the rest of the world improving at the same pace? Yeah. So let's, let's step back for just a moment. Um, when we do currency forecasts, obviously we're looking at all the same factors that other people are. But one factor really has dominated since the beginning of the pandemic, and that is the safe haven nature 
of the U.S. dollar uh, as the world's reserve currency. Um, and if anything, that has been somewhat enhanced um, over the recent past, in part because the United States um, has been able to take somewhat more aggressive measures than other nations in, in coming out. And we also are now looking a little bit better in terms of vaccination rate and so on. What happens going forward in 2021 will be a function not just of us, but is true of all currencies. What happens to other nations? Um, so far, we have seen uh, some disappointment with regard to some of the emerging economies. Uh, but one thing we should all be watching is whether an improved tone in U.S. economic activity will help bring our trade right. partners along with us. And that certainly yeah. would be a good news scenario. I know, John, you mentioned that last week. Yeah, I mean, one final question, if we can, on this day, as we look to women like you that were out front. You know this, and I know this from the CFA Institute, that securities research led the way, whether it was Abby Joseph Cohen, Louise Jumada, what Sally Krawcheck did at Bernstein, and the wonderful Alice Beebe Longley, who I read religiously years ago, I believe it, at DLJ. How do we impart what securities research did with women over to other parts of the financial industry? Uh, Tom, it's a vexing question. Uh, what we basically see in financial services and some other industries as well is that there may be a large number of women coming in at the bottom end of that pyramid, and we all have to do better, not just in financial services, but other industries, in enhancing that pipeline. So, for example, we do see that women are well represented uh, in a number of industries, uh, but as you move up, say, to the VP level or the MD level, that's where we see uh, uh, flattening out. And by the way, while we can point to problems here in the U.S., it's worse in most other countries. Um, and, and so they're looking to us, uh, interestingly, uh, to, to get things better. But let me spend just one more moment. You know, we, we tend to think about these professional white-collar jobs. The real problem for many women in 2020, this has not been a good year uh, for women who are really on the front line, those who are heavily represented in some of those virus-afflicted sectors, including restaurants and accommodation, but also in state and local governments, where women tend to be overrepresented by numbers in positions like teachers and social workers. And over the last year, state and local governments have, in fact, reduced jobs by something like 900,000, and that affects women much more dramatically. The labor force rate for women now is much lower than for men. If you look at adults, it's about 70% participation for men. It's only 57% for women. And this has long-term consequences in terms of potential scarring of the labor force, especially for women. Abby, really important issues, and we appreciate your time coming on this program this morning to share them. Abby Joseph Cohen there of Goldman Sachs. On International Women's Day, we have been flattered by how our team has gotten us important voices. Abby Joseph Cohen on the markets, Elizabeth Economy on China, and now Deborah Fuller from the number one microbiology platform in America. That is all known as the University of Washington in their School of Medicine and Microbiology, where she provides important research leadership. We're thrilled she could bring us up to date on the pandemic. Deborah Fuller, there's so many looking at the clear and press 
president, you and your leadership at Washington are trying to figure out where we'll be on COVID two years from now, five years from now, and even indeed out to 2031. How do we prepare for the next virus? Right. So right now we, uh, we're doing great against the current viruses, but as we can see that, uh, we're constantly, uh, battling new variants that are coming out already. Uh, the manufacturers, J&J, Moderna, and Pfizer, they're updating their vaccines to combat the next one to come. And so we're, we're going to enter into a cycle that would be similar to, to flu, uh, where we're just going to have to constantly get another update. And, and always lingering in the background would be, uh, the potential that a new variant could emerge that could cause yet another pandemic. Mm-hmm. That's the case for flu, and that's the case for coronaviruses. So what we're working on is really uh, thinking about uh, the future is really about developing what we would call a pan-coronavirus vaccine, one that would be able to induce immune responses uh, against parts mm-hmm. of the virus that are very conserved and and uh, allow us to have immunity against not just the current variants, but future variants to come and, and right. uh, provide us protection against a future pandemic. Are we constrained because we don't have have an efficacious vaccine that can go worldwide and particularly to worldwide impoverished areas, that we don't need the refrigeration or the fanciness of mRNA vaccines. Do we need to get to a basic vaccine? Absolutely. I I have always said that the ideal pandemic vaccine is one that could be stored at room temperature and administered in a single shot and ideally self-administered. That is really the way to uh, effectively and rapidly distribute and, and get a vaccine quickly worldwide and into, into both poor as well as wealthy countries. That's another area that we're working on. We're working on a room temperature stable uh, uh, nucleic acid vaccine that's actually based on DNA rather than RNA because that's much more stable and one that can be self-administered without a, a needle and syringe. I was about to say self-administered with a needle might be a different proposition, Dr. Fuller. Perhaps people wouldn't be that excited about that. There is, there is a question, though, whether the mRNA technology has shortened the time from the discovery of how to combat a new strain of either coronavirus or some other virus to actually getting vaccines rolled out into people's arms. How much have we shortened the vaccine rollout? Oh, substantially with uh, the RNA vaccines, as well as the new viral vector vaccines that J&J is developing, enables really rapid update because you only need the sequence of whatever variant is emerging. Traditionally, vaccines would take eight, nine months to update. With these new technologies, we're looking at uh, eight, nine weeks to be able to update and then roll out a new version. Dr. Fuller? How different are these vaccines from one another based on this idea that a lot of officials are trying to prevent people from vaccine shopping and yet there have been different efficacy rates? Right. They, uh, the efficacy rates are really uh, based on, on the fact that the, the vaccines were tested at really different times. The Moderna and Pfizer mRNA vaccines were tested when the first variants emerged. And these vaccines, all three vaccines, were designed uh, to combat that initial variant. So, uh, so the, the um, RNA vaccines were actually the, the world variant was stacked in favor of making those look actually better because when uh, you have a vaccine that is a better match, to the current variant, you're going to get better efficacy. So J&J, by the time they got to their clinical trial, the variants had emerged. And so the differences, I think, in efficacy, you really can't interpret that to mean that one vaccine is better than the other. What's really important is if you look at real real world impact, what we're seeing is all three of these vaccines have a profound impact in protecting against severe disease and death. I mean, 
we're close to 100% protection from death, and that's really what's important. That's what we're after with uh, vaccines is to get it to a point where we don't have to be uh, afraid of the high mortality rate of this virus. Hopefully that point is very close. Doctor, thanks for your time today. Dr. Deborah Fuller there, the University of Washington School of Medicine professor. There is a point, as Liz Goldenberg lectured me years ago, where you switch from yield to a price analysis. Kathy Jones at Schwab Center for Financial Research knows this very well. She watches the flows of what people are doing with their money. And Kathy, I calculate from the end of August, I have a 10-year yield uh, down a good amount in price, 8.3% down in price. Are we heading for a bond bear market? You know, I think we could be over the long run. Uh, I certainly think that the lows that we put in, uh, those very, very low yields, around half of 1% on the 10-year, or I think a third of 1% on the 10-year, uh, is probably the low for a long time. Um, but bear market is, you know, price over time or yield over time. So if we're looking out two to five years down the road, yeah, I think that yields continue to go higher as long as the economy does uh, recover from the COVID, uh, COVID-19 crisis as it continues to do. But the magnitude of the move from here is not likely to be nearly um, as fast or as great, I think, in the next leg as it has been from that previous low. Kathy, we discussed so many times about how self-limiting a move higher would be because of the amount of debt that we've added to this economy. I remember in and around 1% talking about 120. Maybe it was 125, maybe it was 150. We're at 160 right now. Where is it in your mind? Well, you know, 160 was our target coming into the year. And now that we're here, we do start to see a little bit of that pushback from the risk uh, markets and, and risk assets. But certainly yields are not so high that we're going to see a, a huge economic deterioration from here unless uh, unless we start to see credit spreads blow out or something like that. But, you know, you push up towards positive real rates uh, in the 2% plus area, and then uh, we're probably going to see a negative feedback loop uh, work its way through. You know, you have a lot of companies, the smaller, low-rated, unrated companies, the zombie companies that have been rolling over debt for a long time. Their ability to continue to do that if rates push up another 40, 50 basis points is, is going to be challenged. Wait, that's important. Another 40, 50 basis points. That's all it would take for some of these companies to face true financing pressures. You're talking about in the high-yield space in particular. Uh, yeah, no, we just did a, um, an analysis of some of the zombie companies. Now, it's hard to get really good data, uh, but a lot of have been really living on fumes. And so, you know, if you, if you look at the private debt area, the really low-rated um, bonds, you're, they're going to be challenged unless, uh, unless the conditions change in terms of revenue flow from here. The reason why this is such an important point, Kathy, is because people have come on this show and others and said that the real rate, uh, risk is for rates increasing, right, is duration, and not credit, because credit looks good given the backdrop that we have in the easy financing conditions. Are you saying that that story is changing, that credit is starting to matter that much more? Because as you get that rise in interest rates, some of these credits are that much more sensitive to any tightening, let alone 40, 50 basis points. Well, I think you have to differentiate between, say, you know, investment grade, where we've seen a sell-off in the investment grade market, basically because of duration, not 
credit risk, right? And we're not worried about IG. Even in the higher rated part of high yield, we're not worried as much because, you know, this is a potent um, combination of easy fiscal, a, a very accommodative uh, monetary policy and very expansive fiscal policy. That's good for credit. But when you get into the lower rated credit, where you've seen this big you know, buildup of debt and the uh, lack of earnings that we've seen, unless they start to kick in on those earnings, we're going to see some deterioration there. Well, Kathy, we have to talk about the next logical question then, and that's the maturity wall funding requirements. And from what we've seen in the last 12 months is an extension of the average maturity for so many of these companies because funding conditions have been so good. Is there a maturity wall on the horizon? I haven't heard about it. Do you see it? Yeah, I, I don't have an estimate of maturity wall that we're particularly worried about at this stage of the game. Um, you know, there is a lot of debt buildup, and we're certainly going to uh, face some financing problems down the road, but I think it continues to get pushed out. So that's not something we're worried about for this year or even early next year. Kathy, always good to see you, as always. Kathy Jones of the Schwab Center for Financial Research. We've had the great privilege of talking to those within the Ethan Harris shop at Bank of America Securities. As we mentioned with Dr. Harris the other day, Michelle Meyer has been absolutely brilliant over the years on the pulse of the American economy. She joins us here with her leadership and not only that, but uh, her symbolism of International Women's Day and getting it done. Michelle, you know, we have followed, followed your career and it's always narrow questions about this and that. I want to give you a broader question. What is the quality of U.S. 7.3% economic growth? What's the makeup of that big number you have Q4 to Q4? Thanks, Tom. And thanks for the question having me on today on an important day. Um, so when you think about the drivers of U.S. economic growth, and particularly this year with a stunning, we're forecasting 7.3% growth when you measure it on that Q4 of a Q4 basis. Um, we think a lot of it has to do with the consumer. It has to do with the resolve of the consumer to spend and the ability of the consumer to spend. I mean, this is a household sector that is sitting on very strong balance sheets, that is sitting on a lot of dry powder in terms of the amount of cash that is accumulated and more to come, um, which as a result of the, the latest uh, stimulus bill. Um, and, and the consumer has already engaged, it's proven to be resilient, and we think there's a lot more to come um, in the coming months and quarters as the economy continues to move forward and it's reopening. Michelle, do you think that the concerns have been overstated, that people have been hoarding cash simply to pay down debt going forward that's been deferred? I think that has been overblown on an aggregate basis. I'm sure that is happening on a, on a micro level, and you certainly see that in some of the narratives and the, in the anecdotes that are out there, but you're not seeing that on aggregate. I mean, when you think about the debt levels, we don't have that much debt to pay down. It's not the, uh, the, the 2008 period where you had very, very, very much the case that there was excess debt, you needed to deleverage, households needed to clean up their balance sheets. It's not the case today. We entered this crisis, this pandemic, with pretty low debt ratios, historically low financial obligations ratios. Um, and 
I, I think, yes, yeah, some will be go some of that excess cash will be going to pay down debt, but the majority will be able to be used in some form uh, to be able to be kind of pumped back into the economy via spending. Will the economy have the same sort of composition when people start pumping their money back in? In other words, 70 percent services, 30 percent goods, uh, given that, that dynamic has shifted quite a bit during the pandemic. In other words, are we going back to normal or is this going to be a new normal with perhaps more goods and fewer services just in general? Well, I don't think we, yeah, I don't think we should assume that we're going to go back to the economy as it looked prior to the pandemic. Too much has changed in the world and in the economy in the last year. Um, and I mean, certainly the the embrace of more technology, the embrace of an online retailer that has now, you know, shown itself through a variety of different categories and sectors to spend. Um, but, you know, when you think about the, the basket of spend right when the pandemic hit, yes, people were predominantly spending on goods because they they couldn't spend on leisure and other types of services. Once they are able to spend on leisure and services, there will be a certain amount of demand that shows through for those categories. But that won't be the equilibrium either. Right. We have to get past that pent up demand and then we'll figure out what that right balance is between goods and services. Michelle, do you know what's so original about this moment? I'd love to get some insight into your conversations with clients the bulls and bears both agree on where the data is going to be in about four months. They just disagree on how they think the Fed's going to respond to it in the months after that. When you speak to clients, how many of them, just roughly, just throw out a number, how many of them are convinced by the Fed's reaction function when data actually starts to pick up aggressively, when inflation starts to pick up too? You know, I would say the majority of clients we talk to um, have an appreciation for the Fed's reaction function in that they recognize it is different than the prior cycle, that this is not a Fed that is looking to normalize. This is not a Fed that's going to hike upon a falling unemployment rate. And it's not a Fed that's going to hike when they start to sniff out inflation. Mm -hmm. They are going to wait until the unemployment rate is below estimates of NARO, until you've reached that maximum employment measure. They're going to wait until you properly have inflation. Right. But here's, here's, the, here's, I think, the distinction where there's a debate. It's what's the level of inflation, right? So is it that they need to say 2% inflation and they're going to want to get going? Or will the Fed actually be able to tolerate something above 2% for a period of time. And that's where I think you do have a little bit of a disagreement amongst market participants that want to try to urge the Fed along and, in their hiking cycle. And John, to your really, really important question, four months out, it's not only about the Fed, it's this disagreement about the makeup of the American economy. It's a raging debate. The targets have changed, Michelle. The targets in the labor market have changed for this Federal Reserve. And for market participants, we have to change what we're looking at too. It's not about aggregate numbers, it's about disparity. By definition, does that just mean, Michelle, the Fed moves much later than they would have otherwise in previous cycles? Yes, that is exactly what the Fed is trying to communicate. And I think for very good reasons. They're saying it's not just about getting that U3, that aggregate measure of the unemployment rate down. It's much more than that. Maximum employment is to be able to get people to re-engage in the labor force. So look at these broader measures that include labor force participation rates. It's about getting the unemployment rate down across income, racial and income, uh, I said income divides, right? So it's, it's broad-based, it's complete. And, and the key to that is that it will make it sustainable. Right. If you have an unemployment rate, if you have a labor market that's tight enough across the board, it could last. It could it could feed upon itself and you could have yeah. a much stronger, more persistent recovery. What percent of the 
agony here, the job agony forward is restaurants, bars, hospitality. What percent of it is pandemic jobs and what percent is the greater American economy jobs? So there's a lot of room for expansion still in those categories, leisure and hospitality. I mean, we saw that in the last jobs report, the majority of jobs created in the private sector were in leisure and hospitality, which was a payback from the decline we had seen in December and January in those categories. So um, as the economy reopens, you naturally will get a, a big jump in, in job creation in those categories. Um, will it get all the way back to pre-pandemic levels? I think that's debatable. There probably will be some inevitable scarring in those, in those sectors. But yes, you will have certainly a good amount of job creation there. The key, though, I think, is what comes next, as you noted, Tom, right? Once you get past that just kind of mechanical reopening swing, what does the economy look like? What's the momentum for growth? And that, I think, will ultimately be fueled by how much consumers are spending and how that this naturally feeds back into broad-based business investment, which then feeds back into the labor market through job creation. So you need to get to that positive feedback loop, ultimately, um, to, get, to get a better appreciation of what the economy looks like after this is all said and done. Is it too early to do rate hike guesses? Do you have a rate hike guess at this point, Michelle, 22, 3, 4? Yeah. Um, so we're in the camp that the Fed's first hike will be in 2023, more likely in the second half than the first half. But that's, you know, still uh, up to up to the data, frankly. Um, you know, to get the Fed to hike before that, to get the Fed to think about a hike next year, you know, a lot would have to go uh, very, very, very right. And again, we are forecasting a lot to go right. We are forecasting a very strong economy. But I think for the Fed to feel comfortable lift off that quick, they would need to see uh, the inflation cycle really, really speed up. Inflation expectations move up in a meaningful way. Um, wage growth showing signs, again, of increasing across the board. And that would convince them that inflation will be able to take off. And I'm just not convinced that will happen by the end of next year. Michelle, tremendous, as always. And good to see you. Michelle Meyer there of Great Bank of America Securities on this better outlook, this better economy. Joy. Valerie Grant is with Bernstein and uh, with the senior portfolio manager responsible investing. And she brings to the job, and this includes ESG and the rest of it, she brings to the job a prodigious resume and ability in all the different aspects of investing, including with the CFA Institute and her work years ago on, on, on the study of shorting and such. She's just immensely accomplished, and we're thrilled to have Valerie Grant with us here. Valerie, when did you realize on International Women's Day that it was a little bit challenging for women? Did that happen early on, or did that uh, happen when you walked through the door of the house that Sally Krawchuk built? <laughs> Oh my goodness! Uh, well, good morning, everyone. Um, I I would say that you know that was sort of a realization for me as a young girl, but it's not something that I paid a lot of attention to or uh, viewed mm -hmm. necessarily as something to slow me down, and and that's because of my mother. Yeah. My mother uh, was a very unconventional uh, person in many ways. She was a mathematician by training, and she worked for the U.S. Department of Defense as an operations research analyst. Yeah. So she was extremely smart and had a quite unconventional career for a woman at that time. 
And so I saw her, you know, get up and do what she was doing. And I said, well, I'm going to do what I'm going to do. And um, I just sort of right. took it from there, so to speak. How yeah. do we extend that? Our Lisa Abramowitz was telling me this morning of the challenges at her Chicago of everybody in the room was a guy except her and some of the fancy math she did. I think of, you know, what Sally Krawchuk did at your Alliance Bernstein, then Sanford uh, Bernstein, in building out their research capability. How do we get more women doing what young Valerie Grant did, which is doing math, doing statistics. How do we, how do we jumpstart that? Well, I think that really just making the, um, the, the learning experience perhaps more accessible and more engaging. Yep. And then also I think there's a lot of work to be done just to talk about how uh, fun and how enjoyable a career in finance can be. I think sometimes that's overlooked. People talk about the struggles and the challenges, but it's actually a really fun job, interesting. Every day is different and new. And so I think we have to begin to convey that part of it more um, and encourage women to to stick with it and and to find their their spot in the industry. My colleague Paul Sweeney has been miserable every single day of his financial (laughs) career. Paul, jump in here, please. Yeah, Valerie, you know, I worked 20 years on Wall Street as a research analyst, and then uh, I helped build the research department here at Bloomberg for about 10 years. And what I found was, you know, some of those incoming – classes of analysts, whether it's going into, into the investment bank where they hire a couple hundred kids every year out of school or MBA programs, they look pretty diverse. The statistics are pretty darn good. But then when you get seven to 10 years later, when you start talking managing director or partner, not so diverse anymore. It's that, it's that interim period where uh, women and other minorities seem to fall out of the workforce, it seems like. I, you know, that, that's true. I think that there is certainly less diversity at the top of the house, so to speak. Um, we are seeing some progress. I have my, uh, actually, Harvard Business School classmate, Jane Fraser, over at City, running a major financial institution. Yep. There are several other uh, women. Uh, Tassunda uh, Brown uh, Duckett, who just was named CEO at TIAA, is another example. So there are some examples of that glass ceiling being shattered. But I do think it's important for organizations to take a close look at their culture. They have to look at pay equity. They have to look at pay equity. Can I repeat that a third time? They have to look at pay equity because that's a, a, a signal. It says to a young woman or a person of color or, quite frankly, to white men, you'll be treated fairly here. Everybody has a fair shot. And I think that's something that the financial services um, industry, if you will, could do a better job on transparency, on pay equity, and also just, you know, making sure that they're, um, that they're actually enforcing those types of um, policies and practices. It's very important as a motivating factor. Yeah. All right. Let's shift to the markets, Valerie. You know, we're hearing more and more about ESG investing, environmental, social governance. Uh, Bloomberg certainly features a lot of data on the terminal to help Uh, investors with their investing looking at ESG. Talk to us about how you view uh, this part of, you know, portfolio management. I think that uh, responsible investing or the integration of environmental, social, and governance factors into traditional approaches to investing is one of the most exciting areas in asset management right now. Um, I think that what we've seen, particularly over the last couple of years, is uh, just an acceleration in focus on issues like climate change, 
diversity and inclusion, pay equity, which we've already discussed, uh, worker safety, and data privacy and security. And all of these used to be considered ancillary issues. But I think what investors have realized is that they often have a direct mm. impact on equity values. And then if you look at the fixed income side of the house, there's, there are consequences there as well in terms of the creditworthiness of, of some of the issuers out there. So um, it, it's exciting, and, and I'm, I'm happy to be a part of it. Valerie, when I look at ESG, and, and you know, it's all the rage, let's be honest, all our radar, Valerie Grant's radar, my radar, Paul Sweeney's radar is up. Because when every, something is the rage, it usually doesn't turn out good. Are you concerned that it's so in that it could be challenging? I don't think so, because the, the reality is that it, there's still a lot of work to be done in terms of even just basic levels of disclosure, corporate disclosure on material, environmental, social, and governance issues. I think that the data currently is still very uneven. So for those of you who have been in the investing business a long time, you can probably remember back in the old days when the data even on basic financial performance perhaps was um, very inconsistently reported. So I think there's still a lot of opportunity um, for both uh, fundamental approaches and systematic approaches in responsible investing. And I I just think that... um, the demand will mm-hmm. continue for some time. I, yeah, and I, Not enough time. Valerie Grant, we have to get you on again. Uh, thank you so <laughs> much for joining us with Alliance Bernstein and really uh, running all of their uh, responsible investing operations, just hugely qualified. Valerie Grant, thank you so much. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg.